Hebrews chapter 11. If you found verse 17 through 19, won't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 17. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, asking that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that has given us life, that has inhabited our worship, God, we ask the Holy Spirit that has given us the Bible would now open our eyes and unstop our ears and help us. Lord, your people need help. We need help right now. So please, Lord, speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in high school, I had several jobs, many of which I really disliked. First job was as a busboy at a restaurant called Daryl's in the old Eastland Mall. Any of y'all remember that? It was a terrible, terrible job. Went from there to, thought maybe I would take a step up, and went to Hardee's. Ran the register for exactly 10 days at Hardee's. Couldn't stand that styrofoam hat they made you wear. Not doing that. Went from there to South Charlotte. South Charlotte had uh, the South Charlotte Tennis Club. I uh, was on the lower rung there. I actually helped maintain the clay courts at South Charlotte Tennis Club. That was all right. But the very best job I ever had in high school was as a lifeguard at the old Idlewild Country Club where Queens Grant High School is right now. That was a great job. That was a great swimming pool. Go in there, there's a uh, deep end, was 12 feet deep, had a great diving board. You could hit that thing and it would fling you 15 feet in the air. Walk in the entrance to Idlewild Country Club and over on your right there's a square, a one foot wall square that they call the kiddie pool. That kiddie pool had four inches of water in it. You, had, you would have to lay down on your stomach face down if you wanted to drown in the kiddie pool. You could get wet in that kiddie pool. You could splash around in the kiddie pool. But if you ever wanted to actually have fun, you had to get in the deep end. The problem with the deep end is, it's dangerous. That's where a lot of us right now, that's where a lot of us right now feel like we are in the deep end. 
fact, there are men and women sitting in this room right this second that feel like the water is just about over your head. And the question is, how are we going to make it? How are you going to make it is wave after wave of pain or depression or anxiety or doubt. They just keep threatening. Some of those waves are caused by other people that have been really have wronged you in some way. Some of those waves are other people, certainly. Some of those waves are you and your own sin, your own doubt, your own fear. In this passage, remember now, when we read the Bible, we, we need to know what is the context. In this passage, there's a preacher writing to his people. He is worried for his people. He's afraid his people are not trusting God. And in this passage, the preacher is calling his people to trust God in the ocean of their despair. The way he does it, that's what he does in chapter 11, the way he does it, he just keeps setting up people. He keeps giving example after example. He turns their attention to the people that have gone on before them in Israel and lived by faith. This passage from verse 17 to verse 19 we pick up the four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he uses all of these patriarchs as a, as a picture, an illustration of forward-looking, hope-filled faith in the living God. I want you to trust God. I want students... I want you to trust God with your life. Moms and dads, single parents, single people. I want you to trust God with your future, with your all. I want you to walk away this morning with just a little bit, just a, just a little bit more. To walk away with your, with your faith strengthened and bolstered, knowing that regardless of what you've got to face out there this week, you can trust God no matter what, but that takes faith. Truth is, in fact, this is probably how I would say it, truth is we need faith for hard times. We need faith for hard times. We are in those hard times, and to strengthen us, what the preacher does is he takes us to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, he doesn't spend as much time on Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. He starts with Abraham, and he uses them as an encouragement to our own faith. What should your faith look like? Well, here's the first one. Let's go to Abraham, point number one, faith. Faith has a proven depth, a, a proven depth. Faith is not shallow. There is some depth to who you are. Go with me to verse 17, 18, and 19. Let's read about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of, he was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It starts out, verse 17, Abraham 
was tested. He harkens back to a story found in Genesis chapter 22. It's one of the most significant events in the entire Old Testament, and it is so confusing. It's confusing when we're tested. I mean, the word test in verse 17 gives us some idea of God's disposition. What is God doing? You ever wonder, I know you have, you ever wonder, what is God doing? Testing. Purifying. Testing. Testing is a hard but good word. A hard but good word. Putting to the fire so that the dross comes out. Testing. Purifying. Refining. Strengthening. Stretching. Sometimes the test is God is stripping away. They're walking with these crutches and God takes them away. Sometimes the test is God takes away props. Things that you've relied on. This is why testing can be hard. This is why it hurts. This is why it can be so difficult. That's why we call it a test. There are several ways in the passage that the author underlines the gravity of, of this test. You'll see in verse 17, the word offering or offered, it shows up twice at the very beginning of verse 17, at the very end of verse 17, offering and offered. That word is literally to, to kill an animal as a blood sacrifice, and God had commanded him to Offer. Isaac was going to die. There's a finality. There's some people in this room. Look, this is not for you. This is not a, a faith. This is something real. The finality of death. The test. To, to intensify it even more, go with me to verse 17. At the end of verse 17, he uses the phrase, to offer your only son. You see that phrase, only son, monogenes, only born. It's the exact same phrase. You're getting a foreshadowing. It's the exact same phrase that you find in Genesis. You find in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The writer here, the, the preacher is using it as, as an intensifier to say, look, here is the test. Even when you go to Genesis chapter 22, you, Moses wrote it in such a way, he tells us, he intensifies, that God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. There is some, there is some sheer emotional cost sometimes in the test that God puts you through. Agony, despair, grief. In addition to that, when you read the story, what you have here in verse 18, we are told about Isaac's indispensability. Remember, God has promised, is what the author tells us, God gave a command to Abraham, go, go sacrifice Isaac, but Abraham knew that God had promised that he would bless him and he would do so through the offspring of Abraham. That offspring was Isaac. 
that his offspring was supposed to come out of Isaac and it was supposed to be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. And verse 17 and 18 reminds us the, the sum total of Abraham's hope was in Isaac. And God says, I want you to give it up. This is disorienting. You, you've walked through some tragedy before. Some of you have. You've been tested and it's disorienting. You, you're like a prize fighter that gets hit real hard. You get a standing eight count. You're not quite down, but it's disorienting. This flies in the face of everything that Abraham believed about God what he thought about the future, what he hoped for down the road, what he could envision, his understanding of blessings. This is really confusing when, 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 you, when something happens to you and it, it contradicts what you think ought to go on. It's a test. Abraham knew reality, and the reality is that if he follows through with the command of God, then what's going to happen? The promise that God made is over. You see, the preacher's holding up Abraham. He's saying, Abraham went through it, didn't make sense. Nevertheless, Abraham trusted God, and he carried out the commands. How did he do it? How? How did he do it? How did he do it? Verse 19, come with me down there. Verse 19 gives us just a little bit. It's nice to know what's going on on the inside of somebody's mind now and then. Verse 19 gives us some insight into Abraham's thinking. Let me read verse 19. <clears throat> Abraham, he... He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I was thinking about this, and oftentimes I'll read commentaries. Sometimes I'll even go and listen to guys preach that, uh, not many folks have been through Hebrews, so I listen to guys preach through Hebrews. And I found a sermon that Paul Tripp delivered. Paul Tripp's a great author. We've read lots of his books around here. You can find them in the bookstore. I would recommend them all to you. They're good marriage books, child-raising books. Uh, I guess I just didn't know he was a preacher, too. Back in 2009, he pastored a church in Philadelphia, and he preached on this passage. And in the middle of his sermon, he gave four legs of the table called faith. Let me give them to you quickly. How do we, how do we sit on this table? Well, the first leg is the command of God. The command of God. If, if God gives the command in His Word, if God gives it to you in His Word, if it is in His Word, then God is going to do something good with what He says. Isn't this what Jesus says in Matthew 16? When, he, when Jesus says, if anybody is going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. It, it costs to follow Jesus. It's the command of God. He gives us another leg of faith. He calls it the promise of God. For Abraham knew that God had promised and that God is true to his promises. God had made a firm and covenantal promise that he one day would have descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven, sands on the seashore, and if that's true, God would stay true to his promise. Now you, as a believer, can go to the New Testament as a child of God there you can flip through and hear the promises. You can see the promises that God made even to His people of being with them. And those are for you. God will be true to what He promised to do. Not only that, we get the sense in verse 19 that uh, there's a third leg of faith, and that is in the power of God. 
Verse 19, listen to what the insight we have into Abraham's life. Verse 19, he considered, he thought, he considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The power of God. Abraham considered that God is actually able to raise Isaac from the dead. Now, how did he know to consider that? We haven't, I mean, he's not on this side of the cross and resurrection. How did he know? By Genesis 22, there are not any resurrections. How did he know? Remember now, when God spoke to Abraham and made the promise to he and Sarah, they both were very, very, very old. God made a promise to two people, and what he promised was absolutely impossible at that stage in life. Even Sarah knew that and laughed about it. She knew that her womb was dead. And God brought it to life. Let's not forget now. You think about God. Let's not forget the power of God. Let's not forget how God can save and heal and change and restore. Let's not forget that God has the power to carry you through. So God's command is one leg. God's promise is another. God's power is another. And the last leg of, of faith is God's faithfulness. Faithfulness. Abraham, go read the story. Abraham had to wait and wait and wait, trusting that God is faithful. There's something else here in verse uh, 19 that, that has some New Testament light to it. You've probably picked up on it. Verse 19, we're reminded. Here comes the gospel in verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, circle the words, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. See that phrase, figuratively speaking? It is the Greek word parabole. It's where we get the word parable. And what the preacher is saying is that Isaac and Abraham, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it is a parable. It's an illustration of another father, God the Father, sacrificing his son, Jesus, the one he loved, the monogenes, and the resurrection, Isaac coming back to Abraham. The resurrection is a reminder that God raised Jesus from the dead to be our great high priest, and there is the gospel, and that gospel gives us faith for hard times. Faith has a proven, a proven depth. Let me give you something else you'll find in the text. Come, come with me down to verse 20. Faith has a proven depth. Here's the second thing. Number two, faith has a learned trust. A learned trust. You go through so much. You see, God is faithful. You learn to trust Him. Now, let's see what the preacher does here. The preacher turns from Abraham. Everybody knows Abraham. And turns his attention to Isaac. Poor, poor Isaac. Isaac is the least spectacular and the most ordinary of the four patriarchs. Think of, think of it like this. Abraham in Genesis. Abraham gets 12 chapters. Joseph gets 12 chapters. 
Jacob gets 12 chapters. You know how many chapters Isaac gets? Two. He lives the longest and does the least. And yet, this passage takes us to the time when Isaac is tricked. This passage takes us back to the time when Jacob tricked his father Isaac into thinking he was Esau. You remember that story in Genesis chapter 27? Jacob tricked, he got together with his mom. Esau, I mean, how hairy did Esau have to be? Y'all know that story? So that Esau was hairy, Jacob was not, and Jacob put some goat's hair on his forearms and his hands, and his daddy was blind, and when he felt that hair, he thought, oh, this is Esau. How hairy was Esau? <laughs> Esau's gone, so Jacob tricks his father Isaac, and this story is the story right here. The preacher's bringing it back up. Isaac is tricked by Jacob. He knows halfway through the blessings he's tricked, and yet he let the good blessings stand on Jacob and the lesser blessings stand on Esau. Esau found out, Esau found out he's upset. Isaac found out that he had been tricked. Go back and read it, Genesis 27. Isaac found out he had been tricked and left the good blessing for the trickster Jacob and the bad blessing for Esau because according to Hebrews 11 verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. The good blessing should have gone to Esau, but instead it went to Jacob. In that scene, Genesis 27, it's Isaac giving the, the deceiver Jacob blessing and giving the meathead Esau less blessing. And if you go back and read it, it is filled with Jacob's treachery and deception. He deceives his father, but Isaac knew it. And this text is here. I've been rolling around. Why is this here? What does this even mean? This text is here to impress on us just a few things. Here's the first one, I think. I think what you find here is the infinite wisdom of God. The infinite wisdom of God. Even though Esau was the older and Jacob was the younger, the natural thing for Isaac to do would have been to bless Esau the older. Instead, he blesses Jacob the younger. And through deception, he did it. And yet, God let it happen. God knew that the promise would come through Jacob, so he allowed the deceit. He didn't... It was still bad. It was dishonoring. It was sinful. And yet God allowed that to go on. Do you know that God is so infinitely wise, He can take the, the worst deceit and turn it into the greatest blessing? Infinitely wise. You know what else I find out about God here? I find out that God has an overruling, look at the overruling sovereignty of God. I don't just mean the sovereignty and providence, I mean the overruling. That God would overrule Jacob's deceit. That he would bring forth promised generations that would, that would lead to Jesus Christ and, and overrule the sinfulness of Jacob. I mean, you can read when Peter in Acts chapter 4, Peter's preaching after someone is healed and he talks about Jesus. He says that you, sinful men, you crucified Jesus, sinful, but God raised him from the dead. God overrules 
all that you're facing, all of the wrongs, many of the things that you hate, it, it helps now and then just to say to yourself, this is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. God is overruling. This is faith. This is you learning to trust God when, when people have wronged you or people have cheated the system and gotten away with it and done well, and, and maybe you haven't. Being able to gladly look toward the future like Isaac and trust that God is there, and that's enough. Faith. Faith, is, um, faith has a proven depth. That's the first thing. The second thing is faith has a learned trust. Maybe a third thing to consider. Number three, faith is the product of obvious grace. You'll find that in verse 21. Verse 21 is obvious grace. We come to the man named Jacob. I sometimes wonder, why would God let Jacob get a pass. Why? How does God let that go? I mean, when you read the stories, he, Jacob is included in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Why throughout the Bible does God identify himself as the God of Jacob? When I think about Jacob, I get a bad picture in my mind. Queen Elizabeth died this week. You probably have seen it in the news. If not, you have been under a rock. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth died, longest reigning monarch in British history, 96 years old, from all accounts, a Christian woman. She should not have been queen, though, because her father should not have been king. Her father became king in 1937 when her father's brother, her uncle, the Duke of Windsor, King Edward VIII, when... He abdicated the throne in 1937. Go, go watch a documentary on it or read the story. He did it to marry a villainous woman. He became a, a Nazi sympathizer. He is a terrible man in history. When I think about Jacob, that's who I think about. Why does God allow himself to be called the God of Jacob? Lowest form of respect to his father. Go read this story. Dishonors his father and manipulates his mother, conspires with her, mistreats his brother, abuses him, even envies him. He, he lives a long life, Jacob does. And in verse 21, we go back to the story in Genesis 48, when the decrepit old Jacob is blind and sick, and he comes to Joseph's sons to put a blessing on his grandsons. Older on his right hand, younger on his left. Go read the story in Genesis 48. And Jacob, one last trick, crosses his hands and blesses. Why is Jacob mentioned here? It could be a lot of reasons. I think there are a lot of things to say about Jacob's life. I mean, you... He's not the kind of man you want to, I don't tell people to be like Jacob. His life is up and down, kind of a spiritual roller coaster. He's unremarkable for his ethics and his, his holiness or righteousness. 
I think the story is here to remind us, at least in part, of grace. Do you know the word grace as a Christian? I mean, if you understood grace and what God has done to save you, how much you deserved, where you should be, the punishment that come in your way, and God in His goodness reached down and plucked you out of the fire, that if you actually understood grace, I think every single one of us would have wept through worship this morning. If you really understand grace, if you get a hold of grace, I think what happens is when you understand what God has done in you to save you, to redeem you, to purchase you, to adopt you, to have you as His own, what happens is when you think on grace, you would never complain again. Us dwelling on grace would have us never jealous, never feeling slighted, because we realize what we actually deserve. This is Christianity. This is sovereign grace that God in His goodness, let's say the gospel like this, that God in His goodness created us in His image. You have dignity and deserve respect because you are created in the image of God. That image of God in you has been disfigured by sin. Sin is a capital crime against the sovereign God, against our ruler. That crime must be punished, and the punishment for sin is death. But God is not just a judge. He is also good and kind and merciful. And God in His love gives us Jesus, Jesus the God-man. Jesus lives perfectly. That's important because He lived like we can't. And then at the cross, here's what happens at the cross. God unleashes all of His wrath and anger and punishment on Jesus. This is why it's so terrible, and this is why only Jesus could take it, the God-man, at the cross, all of it, and there at the cross, everything you and I deserve is poured out on Jesus. He takes our sin. We get His righteousness. And as a stamp of victory, three days later, God raised Him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and He reigns as Lord. And the gospel says, if you will believe, if you will repent of your sin, and turn to Jesus, He'll save you. It's grace, you see. God does not bless because we deserve it. God does not save because we deserve it. God blesses us to show the goodness of His glory. God blesses us to show the depth of His mercy. God blesses us to show the radical nature of His love. And if God will give grace to Jacob, then God, through the cross, will give grace to you. And when He does, when God does, when He saves you, that grace produces faith. It's a product of obvious grace. Let me give you one more. We've got three patriarchs down. Let's uh, close it out with a man named Joseph. Here's the fourth point, number four. Faith has a joyful endurance. Not just an endurance, but a joyful endurance. The writer, he ends his uh, little flourish on the patriarchs with a man named Joseph, calling our attention to his life. But before you can appreciate his, the end of his life, you've got to have a little bit in your repertoire. You need to know what did Joseph actual, 
What did he actually go through? There in verse 22, we hear, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What about Joseph? What do we know about Joseph? We know that Joseph was loved by his father. His father gave him the coat of many colors. Remember that? His brothers hated him because of it. They envied him. They tore that coat off of him. So he's loved by his fathers. He was, he, father, he was envied by his brothers, kidnapped, assaulted, thrown in a pit, sold to some traveling traders, and into slavery he goes down in Egypt. Now, this is important for redemptive history. This starts the story of the gospel. Slavery in Egypt. There he is in Egypt as a slave. He's purchased by Potiphar. Uh, things start going well in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife likes the way young Joseph looks. She seduces him and then lies, tears off his second coat. That poor fellow can't keep a good coat, tore his, tore his coat off, and then put back in prison, in prison, forgotten, then remembered, then brought to Pharaoh's house. And there with Pharaoh, he starts to rule Egypt. We get to the end of the book of Genesis. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is the protector of all his brothers and Jacob. All he'd been through. And Joseph knew, here we are in Egypt. This is not what God promised. At the end of his life, Joseph, at the end of his life, Joseph made everybody promise when God gets us out of here. In Genesis 50, this is what he says. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you, and you bring my bones up out of here. And then starts the Exodus. Exodus 13, the, the children of God, children of Israel come out of Egypt. Moses leads them out, and Joseph's bones go with them. We went through the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua, Joshua 24, when they went into the promised land, they carried the bones of Joseph with them. All that Joseph went through... All that he endured, he trusted that God would keep his promise. I want you to trust God. I want you to endure joyfully. Look, we are in hard times. We're in them. We need faith for hard times. The faith I'm talking about has a proven depth. There's some texture to it able to withstand. The, the faith I mean is this learned trust, even though you might have been wronged. Faith, faith comes out of this, this obvious grace when you reflect on what God has done for you in Jesus. Faith has a joyful endurance. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, all of that faith is yours in Jesus and listen, if you are not in Christ, all of that faith can be yours in Jesus. Today as we close, what I want to do is just take a moment and reflect on what we've heard. So why don't you join me with your head bowed.
this morning as we go to the Lord in a time of thought and prayer. With your heads bowed this morning, I'd like to ask just a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Is your faith that deep? Is it deep? Is your faith deep? If not, this morning, would you like for it to be? Maybe you need to come and pray. As we sing, just come to the altar and pray. Ask God to give you a deeper faith. Do you trust God? Do you trust God right now with all that you've been through, all that you're going through, all that you're carrying? Do you trust God? Have you thought today much on grace? Have you thought about what it took to save you, what God did to save you? And your thoughts on grace, have they kept you from complaining and being embittered by the world around you? Are you joyfully, think about Joseph now, joyfully enduring, knowing that other people meant it for harm, but God is doing this for good. When we sing this last worship song, Maybe you'd like to come and just pray for yourself or someone else. Maybe you'd like to come and talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Christ. When we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. And for those of you that don't come forward, when you sing today, you sing with joy, knowing that God has saved you and loves you and will carry you through. Father, thank you for the word we have heard, for the grace that is real Thank you for the joy that is in the Lord, and we pray that the joy of the Lord might be our strength. Help us now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Would you stand, please? We sing together.